Because of the World Series broadcast that follows, Checkerboard Jamboree, sponsored by the makers of Purina Chow, will be canceled in certain areas today. Queen for a Day, jointly sponsored by the makers of Alka-Seltzer and One-A-Day Vitamins, the makers of Robin Hood Flower, and the makers of Philip Morris Cigarettes, will be delayed until immediately after the game. We take you now to Braves Field in Boston. Look sharp. Feel sharp. Feel sharp. Use Gillette Blue Blades with the sharpest edges ever home. Gillette's cavalcade of sports is on the air. From Braves Field in Boston, Massachusetts, Gillette presents the World Series for the 10th consecutive year. Good afternoon, baseball fans everywhere. This is Mel Allen with Jim Britt greeting you for the Gillette Safety Razor Company as the Cleveland Indians and Boston Braves get set for the opening game of the 1948 Championship Classic. Fans, for the tops in sports, tune in Gillette's Cavalcade of Sports the year-round. Every Friday night, Gillette broadcasts the major boxing bout of the week for the Fistic Fancy Coast to Coast. Also, as they occur, Gillette airs leading events of turf, diamond, and gridiron. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's been said many times in jest that the country could or should be given back to the Indians. Well, today that quip has taken on an aura of reality. For America truly has been taken by the Redskins, the Cleveland Indians, and the Boston Braves. Many times have these warriors been to the well through the years, but it's been quite a long time between thirst-quenching pennant drafts. It was 1914 when the Boston Braves last headed the National League contingent. The dramatic surge from last place in midsummer to the top at curtain-falling time, and then a spectacular sweep of a star-studded Philadelphia Athletics team in the World Series. That's a story that has been repeated time after time after time, one of the greatest in baseball history. The Warriors from the Lake Erie Reservation, the Cleveland Indians, had gone hunting but wanting for an American League flag since 1920 when they knocked over the Brooklyn Dodgers in the Fall Classic. That was the series, you remember, in which Wamby made that unassisted triple play. And so it's been 34 and 28 years, respectively, for these two clubs since they were last represented in this greatest of sports spectacles, the World Series. And today our wigwam is pitched on the bank of the Charles River in what has often been referred to as quaint or staid old Boston. But you can take it from us, friends, that baseball fans in these parts are just as rabid and sportsmanlike as any you'll find anywhere at any time. I know you're interested in the weather. Perhaps many of you from coast to coast might have received reports from the many members of the various press associations and newspapers who are here in attendance that there was a prediction of rain. There was. Everyone expected that the rain would be coming down today and that there would be a postponement of the opening game of the World Series. But somehow or other, the weatherman has cooperated to a great extent, at least thus far. Since early this morning, the sun was shining. However, at the moment, the sun is not shining, but there are patches of blue around and about. There's a bit of a breeze blowing. It's somewhat cool, but not too cold. It's not quite cool enough for football weather, almost. And the ball players will be comfortable. The wind is blowing in from right field toward home plate the present time, so that uh, left-handed pull hitters will not be aided exactly by the wind. And we're going to give you the distances from home plate down the foul lines in a moment as we go about the ballpark and describe that for you. But let us say, as we return to the weather, that it looks as if we'll be able to get in nine innings without any trouble. There, there are a few clouds beginning to move into the blue, but it appears that we'll be able to play baseball all the way. 
As we look around Braves Field, we look off to the left, and when we look to the left from our broadcasting booth, that's down the left field line, out over the left field fence, over the New York Central Railroad tracks, and we see Fair Harvard, the campus of Harvard University in the distance. And as we move around, looking out across the center field fence where the Charles River floats by, we see Cambridge and Somerville, and off back of right field, we see the skyline of downtown Boston. Getting back to Braves Field, the fans are being entertained at the moment by some antics on the playing field itself, as the Cleveland Indians at the moment are taking infield practice. And warming up are the starting pitchers for today, Johnny Sane of the Boston Braves, sensational right-hander, and for the Cleveland Indians, realizing a dream of a lifetime, one of the greatest names in the history of baseball, Bobby Feller. Just a moment ago, we saw something that uh, sent our mind spinning back through the years. Tris Speaker was talking to Lou Budrow. Lou Budrow, the wonderful, peppery, smart, great manager of the Cleveland Indians, was talking with Tris Speaker, who managed the Cleveland Ball Club in 1920 when Cleveland last won its pennant. We couldn't tell exactly what they were talking about, but you can imagine just about as well as we can. Chris was probably saying to Lou, just do the same thing, Lou, that you've been doing all year, and you'll bring a World Series to Cleveland, a World Series championship, just as I had the good fortune to do back in 1920. On the other side, there's Billy Southworth, a veteran of many World Series campaigns. I remember broadcasting one World Series when Billy Southworth entered as the underdog, just as he has entered the underdog in this series, Cleveland the favorite, against the New York Yankees. It was in 1942. But with Johnny Beasley pitching sensational ball and the masterminding of another outstanding manager and a great handler of men and the keen strategist, Billy Southworth, the St. Louis Cardinals that year beat the Yankees in the World Series for an upset triumph. You never know what's going to happen in seven games, so why try to predict? All we can tell you is that around the hotels, wherever baseball men gather, there are those who predict anywhere from four to seven games, and that just about covers it all. Pitching is the big thing in any short series. Billy Southworth has Warren Spahn to back up Johnny Sane. Lou Budrow perhaps has a little more depth to back up Bob Feller. He has Gene Bearden and Bob Lemon. But you never know who might come out of the ranks to star in a short series. Somebody that you never expected, at least uh, didn't anticipate to star. But on the other hand, these managers might have been grooming him over the past few weeks. And they are tight-lipped about it. So we'll just sit tight and watch what happens as the World Series unfolds between the Boston Braves and the Cleveland Indians. There's another striking parallel here. Jeff Heath who gained stardom in the major leagues with the Cleveland Indians, had the misfortune to break an ankle in the leg in Brooklyn just a few days before the 1948 season ended. Jeff Heath, now with the Boston Braves, who was looking forward to playing in his first World Series, and particularly against his old teammates. Dame Fortune did not see fit to smile on Jeff. However, he had a big smile himself when Cleveland beat the Boston Red Sox in the playoff game at Fenway Park. He went into the clubhouse, crutches and all, and congratulated the men with whom he had played. There have been others who have come along since with whom he did not play. And then he stuck up his leg that had the cast on it and said, boys, go ahead and autograph this for me. And the parallel goes back to a guy named Red Smith from the 1914 team of the Boston Braves. That was that great team, you know, who came from last place around 4th of July to win the pennant. Red Smith broke his leg in similar fashion 
to Jeff Heath. And against the same team, against the Brooklyn Dodgers toward the end of the year. And was unable to play in the series. And both of those men are out here today to watch the action. Jeff Heath, his heart, of course, pounding. His heart broken to a degree because he can't play. And Red Smith, there to comfort him. To tell him about his own experience. And then we saw Hank Gowdy a little while ago. Hank Gowdy is now with the New York Giants. And the capacity of coach. He was with that great uh, Braves team of 1914. And it's been wonderful just to watch all these men who have been invited by Mr. Lou Perini, owner of the Boston Braves, and a wonderful gesture. All the living members of the 1914 Braves team, the last to win the National League pennant, and his invitation have come to watch the World Series. But here are the lineups, ladies and gentlemen. For the Cleveland Indians, as we get ready for the more important business of hand, the start of the World Series. For the Cleveland Indians, it'll be Dale Mitchell leading off playing left field. He hit 336 on the season. Larry Doby will hit second, play center field, with a batting average of 301. Batting third, playing shortstop, will be the manager, Lou Budrow, hitting at 355. In the cleanup spot will be Joe Gordon, no stranger to World Series play, but the first time that he has appeared in the Fall Classics since becoming a member of the Cleveland Indians. Batting at 279, playing second base. Hitting fifth is Kenny Kelter, hitting at 298, third base. Following him in the batting order, playing right field is Walter Judnick, who hit 257 on the season. Then comes Ed Robinson, first base. Hit 252 on the year. Batting eighth and catching, Jim Hegan, who lives in Lynn, Massachusetts, nearby here, with a batting average of 248. And in the ninth spot in the batting order and pitching is Bobby Feller. For the host, Boston Braves, leading off, playing right field, Tommy Holmes, hitting at 325. Hitting second, playing shortstop, one of the sensations of the year, Alvin Dark, hitting at 322. Batting third, playing first base, Torgerson, hitting at 251. In the cleanup spot, and playing third base, last year voted the most valuable player in the National League, Elliott, hitting at 283, Bob Elliott. Marv Rickert will follow Elliott in the batting order. He received special permission to participate in the series after the injury to Jeff Heath, which reduced the outfielding strength of the Braves and was recalled in a hurry by manager Billy Southworth from Milwaukee. Marv Rickert, who at one time played in the major leagues with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Marv Rickert hitting at 211. And then will come Bill Salkeld, hitting at 244 during catching. Mike McCormick will play center field, hitting at 299. He once played in the World Series with the Cincinnati Reds. And a guy that played in the World Series last year, but with a different club, and he's going to start today. And it's going to be interesting to see that little pepper pot in action again. Eddie Stanky, second base, hitting at 315. And in the ninth spot in the batting order in pitching is Johnny Sane from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And now, ladies and gentlemen, our national anthem.
completes the uh, lineup. There go the Boston Braves running out of the field, ladies and gentlemen. The umpires back of the plate will be Barr of the National League, Summers of the American League at first base, Stewart of the National League at second base, Grieve of the American League at third base. The alternates, Paparella of the American League, will be stationed down the left field line, left field foul line, and Pinelli of the National League will be stationed down the right field foul line. And now it's with a great deal of pleasure that I introduce to you your play-by-play announcer for the first four and a half innings of today's game, a man who knows these Boston Braves real well. He broadcasts their home games as well as those of the Boston Red Sox. It's a pleasure to introduce you now, ladies and gentlemen, to Jim Britt. Thank you, Mel. Good afternoon, everyone. John Sain is out on the mound limbering up before throwing the initial pitch to left fielder Dale Mitchell, and Mel Harder and Bill McKechnie are taking their posts in the coaches' boxes at first base and third. But before the first game of this historic 1948 World Series gets underway, we pause 10 seconds for station identification. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Back at Braves Field, umpire George Barr is dusting off home plate, and he also is erasing the parallel lines of the batter's box so that they will in no way interfere with the whiteness of the outside corners on which many a pitch may hang. Dale Mitchell batted 336 for Cleveland during the regular season. He comes from normal Oklahoma. He's the left fielder. There's a strong wind blowing in from the River Charles, an east wind we call him in Boston, and it will take a mighty wallop by a left-hander to hit home run territory. Johnny Sane winds up. He takes his stride. The first pitch, ball outside. Third baseman Bob Elliott broke for the plate, thinking Mitchell might try to drop down a bunt. The outfield's disposition is slightly to the left. The right side of the infield is in a bit. Zane winds up again. Here's the second pitch. And there's a drive to center field with Mike McCormick, drifting to his own left, waiting for it. One out. Mitchell lined out to Mike McCormick in left center field. In left field for the Braves, Marv Rickard playing his first World Series for the Bostonians. As a matter of fact, very few of the Braves have had World Series experience. Eddie Stanky is the only one in the batting order who is seated in an active role. The great Cleveland center fielder, Larry Doby of Norwalk, Ohio, has a batting average of 301, and he's a left-hander. He stands just a little open in the left-handed batter's box. He has great power. The outfield is straight away. Here's the pitch. High curveball. Ball one, no strikes. Every seat, of course, is filled. The park has been sold out long since. Sane gets his sign from Salkeld. He delivers. Ball two, two and nothing. The two foul line umpires are standing just about 30 feet from the right and left field fences. That was a move instituted by Commissioner Chandler. Time is being called. And one of the ushers is being told by Bill Summers to get off the playing field and get back in the confined area of the field boxes along the right field side. Two balls, no strikes. Elliott in fairly close. Here's the pitch. And the curveball is high. Three and nothing. And the Braves' partisans grow somewhat apprehensive. Down in the on-deck area is the great Cleveland manager, Lou Boudreau. Doby sets himself for the pitch. It comes in for a strike called. Three and one. Sane slowed up just a little, threw a moderate speed pitch that was letter high, and Doby plants himself again. Now he takes a wide open stance, feet wide apart, sets himself for the three and one pitch with one out. Sane pitches, and there's a high pop foul. Elliott is chasing it, but the wind blows it into the third base stands for a three and two count. Three balls, two strikes. Before the game, the great comedian, acrobat, contortionist of the Cleveland Indians, Jackie Price, gave a very interesting demonstration. Suspended by his legs from the bleacher wall, he caught fly balls and returned them. 
Three and two the count confronting Sane and Doby. Here it is. There's a high fly ball to right center field. Mike McCormick has scarcely to move for it. He waits, and he takes it. Doby was two-thirds of the way to second base when the ball dropped into McCormick's glove. So the first two Cleveland batters, left fielder Dale Mitchell, center fielder Larry Doby, have flied out to center fielder Mike McCormick. And the great Cleveland manager is up, Lou Boudreau. Runner-up to Ted Williams in the American League Batting Championship. He single-handedly sparked his Indians to two rallies last Sunday. He teamed with Bearden, Keltner, and company to beat the Red Sox in the playoff. His batting average was 3-5-5. He's a right-hander. He's in his pouch. Here's the pitch. Strike call. Curveball, let it high. Lou comes from Harvey, Illinois, and he was one of the greatest athletes the Illini ever produced. Same delivers. Outside, one and one. One ball, one strike. The experts were just about even in their choice of whether or not Sane or Feller would be the winning pitcher in this battle of aces. Johnny winds up, strides, and there's a fly ball down the left field line. It's being chased by Rickett, and he takes it in foul territory, just across the line. A foul ball hits a record, so Cleveland goes down in one, two, three, first inning order. The score is nothing, nothing. Fans, for a doubleheader in shaving value, get hep to Gillette Blue Blades. They're double-edged for double economy. You get two shaving edges, not just one. What's more, they're the sharpest edges ever honed. The easiest shaving and longest lasting on Earth. Bear in mind, Gillette Blue Blades fit your Gillette razor exactly. The edges line up absolutely parallel and extend just the correct distance for smooth, easy shaving. Yes, for the slickest shaves in the book, good-looking, refreshing shaves that really rake, buy Gillette Blue Blades. Five for a quarter, ten for forty-nine. Or, for extra convenience at no extra cost, get them in the handy 20-blade Gillette dispenser for 98 cents. Remember, look sharp, feel sharp, be sharp. Use Gillette blue blades with the sharpest edges ever honed. So it was no runs, no hits, no errors, no one left for Cleveland in the first half of the first inning, as Johnny Sane induced Mitchell, Doby, and manager Lou Boudreau to fly out. Two of them to center field, the other just outside the foul line and left to Mark Rickard. Rickard, you know, was declared eligible because of the injury to Jeff Heath. Tommy Holmes, Thomas Kelly Holmes, Brooklyn-born Boston Brave, will be the first batter. He finished the regular playing season with a batting average of 325 and has long been regarded as one of the most difficult men to strike out in baseball. He's a left-handed batter. He hits to all fields. Third baseman, Ken Keltner, is playing in fairly close. Mitchell is in left field, Doby in center, and Judnick in right. The infield for the Indians, Robinson, Gordon, Boudreaux, Keltner, Bob Feller gets set to pitch to Jim Hegan. Here's the pitch. Low and inside. He threw a fast curveball that broke down near the ankles, and the count is one ball. Billy Southworth is the coach at third base, and Johnny Cooney, an old-time pitcher with a famous hesitation delivery, a pitcher outfielder, is coaching at first. One ball, no strikes, no score, as the Braves leadoff batter, Holmes, waits for the pitch. Ball two, fastball outside, two and nothing. Mr. Chandler's box is immediately to the right of the screen, and Mrs. Boudreaux is seated back of the Braves' dugout. Mrs. Southworth is seated back of the Braves' dugout, naturally enough. And the Braves' 1914 stars are here, and so are some of the great old Clevelanders. Two balls, no strikes. Here's the pitch. Fastball, caught the inside corner, called strike. Two and one. The umpires are positioned at first, second, and third, back of the plate, and on the two foul lines, in the interest of accuracy. And the wind continues to blow in strongly from right center field. 
Holmes waggles his bat. Feller takes a big windup. He fires one, and there's a drive to center field. Doby goes over to his own right, and he takes it. The ball was crisply hit, but it was an easy chance. Holmes flies to center, just as Mitchell did to lead off for the Indians. One man out, and the great young rookie shortstop of the Braves comes up. He is Alvin Dark, the former Louisiana State University star from Lake Charles, Louisiana, with a batting average of 322. He was largely responsible for the success of the Braves in the National League, and he drew high praise from rival managers and players alike. He stands almost straight away, feet wide apart. They play him fairly short in the outfield. Swing and a miss. Feller fired a fastball. This is his first look at Bob Feller, by the way. Outside of the game, he watched at Fenway Park to decide the American League Championship on Monday. One strike to count. Feller takes that big windup. He strides, pitches, and there's a bunted foul down the third baseline, fielded by Billy Southworth. He decided to catch Ken Keltner napping, but the ball was fouled by about ten feet. The count is two strikes. Someone called the attention of George Barr to the fact that Dark's right foot was not in the batter's box, but the umpire looked it over very carefully and indicated that it was one of the Cleveland coaches. Two strikes to count. No score in the last half of the first inning of the 1948 World Series. Feller gets set. He pitches. And there's a foul ball into the right field pavilion. Two strikes to count. Dark swung late on a fastball that was outside. Two strikes to count. One man out. Feller is studying the sign given him by Jim Hegan. The infield is straight away. Here's the pitch. And there's a curveball that missed the outside corner. Feller stepped to his right and fired a crossfire. One ball, two strikes. The first four batters in this game have failed to hit. For the Indians, Mitchell, Doby, and Boudreaux went out. And Tommy Holmes lined to Doby to start the inning for the Braves. Now it is one and two on dark. The pitch. There's a ground ball that goes to Eddie Robinson. Robinson decides to beat him in the race to the bag. And he does. Robinson had to slide into the bag at first base for the decision. Dark rounds out unassisted to Eddie Robinson on an extremely close play with Robinson sliding into the bag to beat Dark, who really got up speed as he neared first. Two men out, and Earl Ferguson of Snohomish, Washington. Earl Averill's first place had a batting average of 251 this year. He wears eyeglasses, as do some of the other players in the contest. Two men out, Mel Harder of Cleveland does, Joe Tucker of Cleveland also. Jorgensen wants the rosin bag, and Bob Elliott, who was in the on-deck area, throws it up to him, and then he steps back into the left-handed batter's box again. Dark's out with the first infield chance of the game, the first ground ball that was handled in fair territory. The first four men to face the pitchers went out on fly balls. Two men out. Jorgensen sets himself, and the first pitch is a curved strike called. One strike to count. Feller is one of the all-time greats of the game. He missed 19 victories this year. His record was 19 and 15. He takes a big windup, delivers, and there's a foul ball grounded to the right of the plate, and first base coach Johnny Cooney is fielding it. The count is two strikes. As Mel told you, the consensus varied all the way from a four-game victory for the Cleveland Indians to a six-game victory for the Boston Braves, a seven-game contest even up. But in a short World Series... It's almost impossible to speculate accurately. In 1914, the Braves were underdogs, but they won four in a row, the first team ever to do it. Feller gets set. 
He throws. Strike three called. He broke a curveball over the plate to strike out Torgerson. No runs, no hits, no errors, and none left. Neither team has put a runner on in the first inning of play. George Barr comes back of the plate to get some fresh baseballs. Bill Salkeld trots out to his catching position. Billy Southworth is a believer in the two-platoon system. Consistently all season long, he has thrown left-handers in against right-handers. An announcement is just being made calling the attention to the fact that 31 of the players in this World Series Classic, 31 of the Indians and the Braves, started under the American Legion Junior Baseball Program, and here as guests of the Boston Braves and the Cleveland Indians today are the 1948 American League, American Legion Junior National Champions, the Trenton, New Jersey team. They were all out on the field getting their fill of autographs, and who knows, many of them may someday be playing on this and on other major league fields. Because all told, about 200 major leaguers got their start in the program. Joe Gordon, the ex-Yankee and the great Cleveland second baseman, will come up. He's a Portland Oregonian with a batting average of 279. Regarded by many as one of the great second basemen of all time. He stands deep in the box. Johnny Sane throws the first pitch, and it's a strike call. That caught the outside corner, belt high. Here's the windup. The pitch. Foul ball that's drifting into the first base stands out of play in the count of strike two. Bill McKechnie is the coach at third base. Mel Harder is doing the coaching at first base, and Harder, by the way, was the batting practice pitcher for the Indians prior to game. The outfield is deep to the left with Gordon up. No score in the game. And so far, both pitchers have pitched one, two, three baseball. Sane is all set. He delivers. Strike called. Strike three, a curveball that caught the outside corner. Gordon took it, so both Feller and Sane have a strikeout. Ken Keltner comes up. Keltner put the skids under the Red Sox last Monday with a three-run home run that broke an existing one-run tie and gave the Indians a 4-1 lead, which they never relinquished. He's from Milwaukee and has an average of 299. He's a hard-hitting right-hander. He lets a ball go by inside. One ball, a fastball. The outfield is still to the left with Keltner up. Here's the windup by Sane. He pitches overhand and high. He threw a fastball. The count is two and nothing. One man out on the second inning. Third baseman Bob Elliott plays in as he should about ten feet inside the line. Keltner sets himself for the pitch. And he takes a strike. A curveball. Two balls. One strike to count. Sane won 24 ball games. He's the top winner in all of Major League Baseball this year. Johnny delivers. There's a foul ball that goes right back into the press box. The first souvenir to go to the boys in typewriter row during the ball game. Nothing, nothing to score. So far, neither team has forced a break. The pitching is holding up. But the game is in its very early stages. The second inning with one out and none on. Here's the pitch. There's a drive that goes over Elliott's head for the first hit of the ball game. Rickard throws it into second base and holds Keltner to a single. Only because the outfield was stationed to the left was that blow kept from going for extra bases. So there is the first hit of the 1948 World Series by third baseman Ken Keltner of Cleveland and Walt Judnick, a left-handed batting right fielder, comes up. Judnick is from San Francisco. He also has played first base for the Indians this year. The outfield moves to the right a bit. The pitch, outside. One ball, no strikes. Bill McKechnie hollered, there he goes, just as soon as the pitch came over. 
but there was no attempt made by Keltner to run. The Braves infield has moved into the halfway position, hopeful of a double play. The stretch by Sane, the pitch. Ball two, a curveball that was a little on the inside. So it's two and nothing. First blood in the hit department by Keltner. He takes a lead off first base. Sane delivers. Strike call, curveball. That curved over after Judnick had stepped away from it. Eddie Stanky cups his mouth with his glove and shouts some instructions to Al Dark, the shortstop. Sane is taking a stretch, and he throws quickly to first base, but there's no tag. Keltner got back. And now Sane concentrates on the batter again. The pitch to Judnick. There's a drive down the right field line. Foul ball. That was ruled foul by the right field foul line umpire, Babe Finelli. It was a wicked line drive. The Indians were trying to try the hit and run, and that ball was very nearly in there for extra bases. The field boxes out in right field will keep some balls, perhaps, from going all the way into the right field corner where the rolled-up tarpaulin rests. And similarly, the field boxes out in left field will serve as a protection. Two and two. Judnick the batter. Keltner on. One out for the Indians in the second. The pitch from Sane. Inside. And there's the first full count of the ball game. Three and two. The great many World Series firsts of 1948 are bound to be registered in the early innings of play. The weatherman was wrong, fortunately. He predicted rain. There's a 3-2 pitch. The runner goes. There's a drive to right field. Tommy Holmes makes the play, and he throws to first base to chase Keltner back. So there are two men out with Keltner returning to first base as Judnick now with a hard line drive that was taken by Tommy Holmes. With Judnick having flied out to right field, Eddie Robinson, the first baseman, is up. He batted 252 this year. He's a left-hander and comes from Paris, Texas. He's a tall, likable, husky batter who is not unmindful of Hal Trotsky, who once played first base for the Indians. Sane delivers. Strike call. He threw a fast one. He has a good, fast curveball and an excellent sidearm curveball, which he delivers on rare occasions. Usually good control. The stretch. There's a ground ball to Torgerson. He knocks it down, steps on first. And Robinson is retired unassisted. No run, one hit, no errors, one left for the Indians. The score at the end of an inning and a half, nothing, nothing. Anybody who grows as tough whiskers as Leo DeRocher of the Giants does should know a thing or two about razor blades. So, folks, here's Leo DeRocher. Fans, this is one man's opinion. But in my experience, Gillette blue blades are far and away the easiest shaving kind there is. Care to recommend the Gillette dispenser, Leo? Yes, sir. It's a marvelous convenience, fellows. A handy plastic case loaded with blades. When you want one, you push with your thumb, and there it is, unwrapped. Men, the Gillette dispenser makes blade changing a breeze with any Gillette razor. You get it filled with 20 Gillette blue blades, 40 superb shaving edges, for the price of the blades alone. 98 cents here, a dollar in Canada. Ask for the Gillette dispenser. Yes, look sharp, feel sharp, with the sharpest edges ever honed. Bob Elliott will be the first batter for the Boston Braves in the second inning. In two innings, the Cleveland Indians have no runs, one hit, no errors, one runner left. The only hit was that of Ken Keltner with one man out, a single to left in the second, but he was left stranded. Bob Elliott was last year's most valuable player in the National League. He batted 283 this season for the Braves. He's a right-hander from San Diego, California. 
He stands with a very closed stance on the outfield place in to pull the ball. Bob Feller gets ready. He pitches. Foul tip. Robert went right after that first one. In five of the last six years, Elliott has driven in 100 runs or more. He just did make it this season, driving in his 100th run in the final game against Leo DeRocher's Giants, by the way. One strike to count. Feller is, as always, a deliberate workman. Baseball is his profession, and he treats it like a business. He pays meticulous attention to detail. He goes into that big windup. He strides, pitches. A curveball low outside, and the count is one and one. Rapid Robert, the Van Meter, Iowa farm boy, now from Waukegan, Illinois. Johnny Cooney and Billy Southworth are coaching at first and third. The outfield swung to the left. Keldner fairly deep at third base with Elliott up. Gordon over to the right of second. The pitch. There's a drive that goes toward right field. Coming in fast is Judnick, and he takes it. It looked for the moment as though he misjudged it, and it also sounded like a broken bat. Elliott flied out to right field. Marv Rickert, R-I-C-K-E-R-T, who was recalled from Milwaukee after the injury to Jeff Heath down at Brooklyn, was declared eligible as a result of a special ruling by the Commissioner of Baseball with the full approval of the generous Cleveland Indians. He lives in the Tacoma, Washington area and has batted 211 during his short time with the Tribe. He's a left-hander, bats from a crouch, and he hits a high fly ball toward right center field. Judnick is under it, but Doby calls for it, and Doby takes it. It was easier for him because of the position of the wind. Two men out as Elliott and Rickard have flied to right and to center. And left-handed hitting catcher Bill Salkel comes up. Like Lou Boudreau, he's wearing a turtleneck sweater. Several of the players are because of the chill air here at Braves Field today. There's no score in the game. Ken Keltner so far has accounted for the Cleveland hit. Salkel is from Los Angeles. He batted 244 during the regular season of play. He stands with an open stance deep in the box. Left-handed. The pitch. Strike call. Feller threw a fast one to open up. Mike McCormick is the on-deck batter. The outfield is just a shade to the right, and the infield isn't deep on the left side, but Gordon and Robinson are back near the edge of the outfield grass between first and second. The wind-up by Feller. The pitch. Foul tip. He got that with the very end of the bat. Two strikes the count. All the boxes are covered with red, white, and blue bunting and a few Cleveland Indian and Boston Braves pennants are in abundance. As Mel Allen told you, the country has literally been given back to the Indians, baseball-wise, because both the Indians and the Braves wear tribal insignia. Two strikes. Feller pitches. Strike three, swinging. A fastball, and that is the second strikeout for Bob Feller. No runs, no hits, no errors, none left. This has been an even ball game so far, except that Ken Keltner has dented the hit column for the Cleveland Indians. In the first half of the third inning of a scoreless World Series opener, Jim Hegan of Lynn, Bob Feller of Waukegan, and Dale Mitchell of Normal, Oklahoma will be the batters. In two innings, the Indians have sent seven men up to the plate, and the Boston Braves have sent six. Practically every name well known to baseball is here today. And probably the most interesting concession to sentiment, a tribute to the 1914 Boston Braves, of whom Hank Gowdy, the popular coach of the New York Giants, is one. George Stallings Jr. is here, representing his late father. And such grand old-timers as Rabbit Moranville, Red Smith, and the rest of them. 
Jim Hegan is extremely popular in New England because he lives in metropolitan Boston. He has a batting average of 248, and he is one of the most durable receivers in the business. He did the catching for Cleveland with very, very little relief. He worked 144 games for the Indians this year. He's a right-hander. Same pitches to him, and it is ball one. Curveball, just missed the inside. Same shook his head. Eddie Stanky is positioned out on the grass, about 15 feet to the right of second base for Hegan, figuring that he's likely to pull one back through the middle. Same pitches. Foul tip right into Bill Sawkell's glove. That was a fastball, and the count is one and one. The outfield is deep to the left, with left fielder Marv Rickard playing right down under the big scoreboard. Here's the pitch. There's a ground ball that goes to Elliott. He fumbles the ball. Can't find it. Hegan is safe at first. No throw was made. It is an error for third baseman Bob Elliott. Ed Burns, one of the official scorers, just gave us the decision. Bob not only fumbled the ball, it bounded up over his head as it hit his glove, but he couldn't find the ball. He looked around in rather bewildered fashion. Bob Feller is up. He had a season's batting average of 0.95. His earned run average is 3-3-3. He's a big right-hander. They were looking for the bunt, and it's a foul ball. He tried to bunt it, fouled it back. Torgerson was just 15 feet in front of the plate when the ball was fouled. So the first down of the ball game is charged to Bob Elliott. It was a routine grounder, but it was a hard one. It took a high hop, about letter high, and bounded out of Elliott's glove. Sane takes his stretch. There's no one out. Here's the pitch. And it's a high one as they're trying to keep Feller from bunting the ball. One and one. Both Sane and Feller have excellent fastballs, and when they throw a good fast one close to the batter, it's difficult to bunt the ball. Here's the pitch. And there's a foul ball. As he tried to bunt it, it just turned the bat in his hands and went to the right of the plate. One ball, two strikes to count. Bob Feller looks down the third baseline to get his sign from Coach Bill McKechnie, who doubtless has already given it to him. Eddie Stanky came in to have a brief conference with Johnny Sane. The infield is in a bit on the grass. Third baseman Bob Elliott in close. The count, one ball, two strikes. Here's the pitch. Strike three, swinging. Third ball. After he got Feller into a one-and-two hole, Sane served him, and the two pitchers have two strikeouts each. One man out. Left fielder Dale Mitchell up. His season's average was 336, and his first time up, he lined out to center fielder Mike McCormick of the Braves. Dale is a left-hander, and he was one of the most potent factors in Cleveland's pennant drive. Sane pitchers to him. Outside, ball one. George Barr is working back of the plate, and Bill Stewart at second because Barr is the senior of the two. And the other base umpires are Bill Summers and Bill Greaves. The pitch is a high infield pop-up. Elliott calling for it in foul territory to the left of third base, and he takes it. A foul ball taken by Elliott just outside the third base coaching box for the second out. With perfect support, the side would have now been retired, but because of the error that opened the inning, permitting Hegan to reach first base, Larry Doby now must be retired by Johnny Sane. Doby fired out to center field his first time up. He hit a monumental home run this season at Washington and Griffith Stadium, about which they're still talking in the nation's capital. He has tremendous straightaway power. He's a left-handed batter. The first pitch, curveball high, ball one. Two men out, no score in the game. Four goose eggs already adorn the scoreboard. Keltner has the game's only hit. The stretch. There goes the runner. The pitch is outside, and the throw is not in time, and Hegan steals. 
he got a good lead on Johnny Sane. He stole that base on the pitcher, not the catcher. By the time Salkeld had drilled his throw to Al Dark, there was no time for the tag. Keegan had already slid in with the first stolen base of the 1948 World Series. Two balls, no strikes to count on Dolby. Keegan takes the lead off second. There's a ground ball that goes to Al Dark. He's in fast. The throw to first. That's all for the Indians in the third inning. Dolby grounded out six to three. Short to first. No runs, no hits, one error, one left. So, at the end of two and a half innings of play, the score is nothing-nothing. It was Leo DeRocher, pilot of the New York Giants, who last inning called the Gillette dispenser a marvelous convenience. Yes, and believe me, you'll put in with him when you try this handy device that makes blade changing quick and easy with any Gillette razor. Men, it puts 20 Gillette blue blades, 40 shaving edges, right at your fingertips. You deal them out one at a time, unwrap. Just push with your thumb and zip. There's a blade. What's more, the shaving edges are perfectly protected at all times. They don't even touch the dispenser when blades are being ejected. Enjoy extra shaving ease and convenience. Buy Gillette Blue Blades in the modern Gillette dispenser. You pay only 98 cents, the regular price of 20 blades. Look sharp, feel sharp, be sharp. Use Gillette Blue Blades with the sharpest edges ever home. Mike McCormick will be the leadoff batter for the Boston Braves going into the last half of the third inning. Mike was born in Angels Camp, California, scene of the famous Jumping Frog Derby, and he lives in Ventura. His season's batting average missed the 300 mark by just one point. He batted 299. He's the center fielder. Stands feet close together. And he crowds the plate a bit. Bob Feller gets his sign from Jim Hegan. And Rapid Robert takes his windup. He pitches, and there's a high fly ball going to short, stop, going to shortstop. Who draws back under it? And Lou took it. He earned the second batter of the uh, inning, Eddie Stanky, a pop to Bob Elliott at third base, and we pick up the action with Johnny Sane batting. A fast call strike. One strike to count. This game has started out the way. The real baseball fans like to see World Series competition get underway with two pitchers on even terms. The breaks later, perhaps, to decide it. Here it comes. Foul ball. That goes back into the crowd, and the count is two strikes. It was fouled off to the right of the plate. Cooney and Southworth are the coaches for the Braves at first and third, while for the Indians, they are consistently Mel Harder and Bill McKechnie. The outfield is set a little to the left. Two strikes, two men out, no base runners for the Braves in the third. The windup. Here's the pitch, and there's a high foul ball to the right of first base. Robinson is chasing it, the wind is carrying it, and he makes a nice catch and then fends himself off against the retaining wall of the boxes. A one, two, three inning for Feller. No runs, no hits, no errors, none left, as Sane fouls to first. At the end of three innings, there is no score. Now, we pause 10 seconds for station identification. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. This is WOR New York, the mutual station that brings you the World Series and other top sports events the year-round. This is Jim Britt back at Braves Field in Boston, where on the top of the fourth, Johnny Fain will have to pitch his way by Boudreaux, Gordon, and Keltner. 
Cleveland shortstop, second baseman, and third baseman. Three quarters of a very potent infield. The last time Cleveland won an American League championship was back in 1920. And in a series that followed, they beat Brooklyn in, in five out of seven games. That was a great series, and old-timers will remember the unassisted triple play by Bill Wormskant and Elmer Smith's grand slam and Stanley Kowaleski's three five-hitters. Who drove fouls to left field his last time at bat. He bats from a peculiar right-handed crouch. Johnny Sane fires one, and there's a high foul ball that's drifting out of play into the stands for strike one. That dropped right out of the bunting of one of the flags that flanks the first base Skyview seat. They have Skyview seats at Braves Field. It is not a double deck affair. One strike to count. Sane gets his sign. The outfield is set to the left. Here it comes. Close and fast for a ball. Boudreau got his head out of the way, and the count is one and one. Lou posed with a very attractive Mrs. Boudreau with her orchid and all just before the game. The pitch. A high foul ball. That's drifting into the first base stands out of play. One ball, two strikes. The newsreel men are all atop the press box so that actually there are three levels from the spectator and press coverage point of view. But it is a single-deck structure. And there are no center field or left field bleachers. The only bleachers is called the jury box out in right field. And it holds only 1,800. One ball, two strikes to count. Boudreaux waits for the pitch. And he strikes out. A curveball. Let it high. Boudreaux struck out. That is the third strikeout to Sane. Here's Joe Gordon. He was called out on a strike. A curveball that caught the outside corner his last time. One man out. Joe Gordon, the second baseman up. Nobody on in the Cleveland fourth inning. Gordon hit the ground foul down the third baseline. Foul by not much. About four or five, five feet. That's all. One strike. No score in the game. Ken Keltner singled in the second inning, and in the third inning, Keegan reached on an error by Elliott and stole second. He's the only man so far to have reached second base. The outfield is deep to the left. The infield over to the left. Same pitches. And there's a long foul ball that goes into the left field pavilion. That's the longest ball of the ball game. That would have been all the way out of the ballpark had he not pulled it so much. Two strikes. Sankey is playing about 20 feet to the right of second base. Sane winds up. He fires one. And there's a ground ball that goes by dark for a single to left center field. And Gordon has the second Cleveland hit of the ball game. The throw in goes to the shortstop. He just leaned into one. Ken Keltner, the batter. That's the second hit. Keltner single to left his last time up. He hit a line drive over the head of Bob Elliott. Gordon leads off first. Inside, that one very nearly hit Keltner. He had to spin to get out of the way. He was trying to take a toehold, and Sane threw one close to the whiskers. One ball, no strikes. Cleveland has two hits. The Braves have committed one error, and Hegan has stolen one base. But it's nothing-nothing, fourth inning, one on, one out. Here's the pitch to Keltner, and there's a drive down the left field line, and it's a foul ball by about eight inches. And there is one of the reasons why the commissioners insisted on foul line umpires. 
The third base umpire, Bill Green, gave the sign, but so did the left field umpire, Joe Paparella. That was outside by about eight inches. Keltner missed an extra base hit, and it's conceivable that Cleveland just missed the first run of the ball game. Gordon had started to go, and the count now is one and one. Keltner's season's average was 299. He hit his 31st home run in the playoff game at Fenway Park on Monday. There's the stretch by Fane. The pitch. Strike call. Curveball. One and two. Gordon is being given his running directions by Nell Harder. Harder looks toward the dugout. There's a stretch by Fane. Gordon leads off first. Here's the pitch. And there's a foul ball down the left field line, fouled by a great many feet. Rickert went over and it dropped into the field boxes, and the usual scramble followed. It's a scoreless World Series opening game. We're in the first half of the fourth inning. And the only activity so far has been produced by the Indians from an offensive point of view, with two hits and cashing in one brave error briefly. One ball, two strikes. The pitch, foul ball, back into the press tube. One and two. Red Barber scooped up that, by the way. A souvenir, a souvenir baseball. One ball, two strikes to count. Gordon leads off first. There he goes. Strike three. It's a strike three and a stolen base. There goes a throw to first base, but that's just a precaution. For an instant, I think the fans suspected that was a foul ball, but the plate umpire, George Barr, very alertly said, no foul, strike three, but the ball was dropped by Sawkill, and Gordon is credited with a stolen base. That's the fourth strikeout for Sane. Walt Judnick is the batter. Judnick is a left-hander. His first time up, he lined out to right fielder Tommy Holmes. So for the second time, the Indians have a runner on second. Here's the pitch. Strike call to curveball. So far, both pitchers have been in excellent form. Judnick's season's average was 2.57. He's deep in the box. There's the pitch. Low, and he fell away from it. One and one. Sane tried to tease him to go after a bad curveball, a low one. One ball, one strike. Cleveland so far has stolen two bases. One base was stolen on Sane, the other when a third strike was dropped. The pitch. There goes a fly ball to right field. Tommy Holmes is coming in under it, and it should be easy for him. Out number three, as Judnick for the second time flies to Holmes. No runs for the Indians in the fourth. One hit, no errors, one left, and a stolen base by Gordon. The score is nothing-nothing. You expect Gillette with factories throughout the world and unmatched technical knowledge and facilities to make shaving as easy and convenient as possible in order to maintain leadership. Naturally, Gillette technicians work constantly to improve Gillette razors and blades. Take the new Gillette Super Speed Razor. It's a radical improvement over the finest razor money could buy at series time last year. It outmodes and outperforms any other razor you ever saw. For instance, it has a notched positioning bar for use with the Gillette dispenser. Zip out a blade, hook it in place, twist, and the razor closes. Yes, and what shave you get. See it. You'll buy it. Try it. You'll swear by it. Ask for the improved Gillette Super Speed Razor plus 10-blade Gillette dispenser. Big $1.50 value for a dollar. Cleveland so far has no runs. 
two hits. The Braves have made the game's only error, and the Indians have left the game's only three base runners. In the last half of the fourth inning, the Braves will get their second look at rapid Robert Feller, Cleveland's fireballing ace. Tommy Holmes slide to center his first time at bat. He's a left-hander, and Feller gets set to pitch to him. Here it comes. Curveball, low and outside. Feller is an artist, a baseball pitching artist, and the coordination with which he works is beautiful to watch. He's a magnificently conditioned athlete, and he regards baseball as a highly successful profession. He pitches. There's a ground ball right back to him. He turns around, waits, throws to first for the out. He makes Tommy run. Took plenty of time. That's his first assist. Holmes grounding out to the mound. And shortstop Alvin Dark comes up. Dark is one of the fastest men in baseball. His first time at bat, he very nearly beat out a hit. But Eddie Robinson slid into the bag after fielding it unassistedly. One man out and none on. The outfield is playing Dark straight away. The wind-up by Feller, the pitch. Fastball for a strike. That was a Feller fireball. That came over, let her high. Bob hasn't been close to walking anyone so far and has two strikeouts. He struck out Torgerson on a call strike in the first, and Salkeld went down swinging in the second. Here's the windup. Dark sets himself, and he hits a ground ball that goes to Gordon. Gordon comes up with it. There's a quick throw to first for the out. Nice play. That ball was about as hard hit as any of the Braves have hit, but it was fielded flawlessly by the great Cleveland second baseman. Earl Torgerson, left-handed first baseman up. He was called out on strikes as Feller sneaked a curveball over the inside on him his first time at bat in the first inning. Feller has retired 11 consecutive Braves. The outfield moves around to the left a little with Torgerson up because of the wind blowing in. The pitch outside, that was an overhand curveball. Lou Boudreau, you know, was the originator of the Ted Williams shift, and he seems to have the knack for placing his infielders with an almost uncanny premonition as to where the ball is hit. That's been largely responsible. The pitch, fastball, moving Torgerson out of there. Two and oh. Torgy steps back in again. His boyhood idol was Earl Averill, the Earl of Snohomish. They both came from the same town, but now Torgerson resides in Natick, Massachusetts. Feller hasn't his signage yet. Hegan is doing his catching from a crouch. He straightens up just a little. Here's the pitch. Ball three. There's the first three and nothing count Bob has had in the ball game. Two men out for the Braves in the fourth inning. And Torgerson has a count of three balls, no strikes. Feller rubs up the cover of the ball. Spins it in his glove a little. The Feller wind up. And the pitch. Strike called, three and one, like threading a needle. Bob Elliott, the on-deck batter. So far, Cleveland has had two base runners on second. They both got there by stealing. Jim Hegan was the first, Joe Gordon was the second, but neither team has put a runner as far as third. Three balls, one strike. Jordison bends his knee slightly. He bats from a left-handed crouch. Here it comes. Ball four, and there's the first Boston base runner. It is also the first base on balls of the series. Bob Elliott comes up. He flied out to right field his last time. Elliott is the number four man in the batting open. His nickname, as far as his teammates are concerned, is Mr. Team. 
a tribute to his most valuable player award of last year. Two men out. Torgerson is a very fast base runner. So you may speculate on whether or not Billy Southworth will tell him to try to pill for a base and set up a run. He was thrown out only once this year. He stole his first 18 bases without interference. Time called. Elliot's rubbing some dirt onto the handle of the bat and drying his hands on his uniform trousers. Feller pitching from a stretch for the first time. Strike called. Fastball. He threw that one letter high. Jorgensen is being held close at the bag by first baseman Eddie Robinson. There's no score in the last half of the fourth inning. Keltner and Gordon have the only hits of the game. Feller takes a stretch. Torgerson leads off first base. He draws a throw, but there's no tag. And Robinson returns it to the mound as Keltner comes over to back up. That's an automatic task assigned to a third baseman. There's another throw to first base, a little quicker this time, but still no tag. Feller, realizing that Torgerson is capable of stealing a base if he's given too much of a lead on the pitcher's throw, is trying to keep him close. One strike. Torgerson has a long lead. Swing and a miss. Fastball. Feller really fired that one. Feller has looked more and more like the Bob Feller of old in the last month and a half. You know, he won seven straight ball games and came a cropper only against the great Hal Newhauser. That was what forced the playoff at Fenway Park. But Gene Bearden pitched a magnificent five-hitter, and the Indians played great team ball to win going away. Two strikes to count. There goes Torgerson bluffs. Comes back, and it's high and wide. Ball one. Torgerson broke, and then immediately dug in and returned. One ball, two strikes. There's a little track worn in on the first baseline, about 30 feet, where Torgy has been dancing, out towards second, and then coming back as the situation demands. Feller has thrown over twice to try to keep him close. There are two men out, fourth inning and no score. There goes Torgerson. It's outside. There's the throw. Stolen base. The throw was on the right side of second and high. Boudreaux took it, but Torgerson has stolen a base, the third stolen base of the game. The Indians have stolen two. The count on Elliott, two and two. Egan didn't have much of a chance to make a good throw on it because Feller's pitch was so wide. The roar of the crowd tells you, of course, that the majority of the fans here at Braves Field is naturally a Braves crowd. There are baseball figures from all over the United States, and when we move out to that huge lakefront stadium in Cleveland, the roar will be even greater when the Indians attempt to rally. Jorgensen now on second. Two men out, two and two on Elliott. Here's the pitch. There's a fly ball to left field that should be easy for Mitchell. He's running over toward the foul line, and he takes it. He had to step because the wind tried to break it down. No runs, no hits, no errors. One walk, a stolen base, and a runner left. So at the end of four innings of play, the Cleveland Indians have two hits. The Braves have an error. The Braves have left one runner, and Cleveland has left three. Going into the first half of the fifth inning of a good pitcher's duel, Robinson, Egan, and Feller, the last three men in the Cleveland batting order, will be up. For a rousing time, get your friends together Friday night and enjoy a corking good scrap on Gillette's Cavalcade of Sports. Yes, for the major boxing event of the week, 
Tune in Gillette's Cavalcade of Sports Friday night. Consult your newspaper for local time and station. I know that Mel and the other members of our broadcasting crew will agree when I tell you that the setup here physically, as far as broadcasting is concerned, is as good as there is. Men who have broadcast World Series from all the stadia in the United States were overwhelmed when they saw the way the Braves had set us up. The view is perfect. Eddie Robinson grounded to first his last time. He's a left-hander. The pitch, foul ball, back into the screen for strike one. Stalkeld lost that for an instant, looked up in the air, thinking the ball might be directly overhead. Eddie Robinson is a tall, husky Texan. And he's an excellent leather man. He's wearing a bandage on his right thumb. Lou Boudreaux is wearing a bandage on his right thumb. Jammed it slightly, but insists it's not serious. One strike to count. Here's the pitch from Thane. And there goes a little fly ball to right field. Holmes coming in fast for it, and he takes it. Nice running catch. Looked for an instant as though that might be a Texas leaguer. But the wind held it up so that Holmes was able to run over towards the right field foul line and grab it. So Robinson flies out to right field. He has no hits and two trips. And Jim Hegan, the Cleveland catcher, comes up. He got a life in the third inning when Elliott booted his ground ball, and then he stole second and was left. He's a right-hander. Thane delivers. There goes a drive to left for a hit. The third Cleveland hit of the game. Hegan is rounding first. The throw in from Rickert makes it a single. That's the third hit Thane has yielded in four and a third innings. So Hegan is the only man in the game who has twice reached. And Bob Feller comes down the path to the tune of the applause. He touched his cap as it started with an opportunity to enhance his own cause. His first time up, Bob tried to sacrifice, and then with a count one ball, two strikes, he struck out. He's a right-hander. There's the pitch. There's the bunt. And it goes fair. The throw is to first base with Torgerson taking it for a sacrifice. Hegan going to second. The ball was just inside the third base line. It was fielded by Falkeld, thrown to Torgerson, the first baseman. And that is the third Indian to reach second. Hegan has twice reached. And Dale Mitchell, left-handed batting left fielder, is up with a runner on second. Two men out. Mitchell flied to center fielder Mike McCormick his first time and his second time in the third inning. His foul pop-up was taken by third baseman Bob Elliott. So he has none in two. He's left-handed. Same stretches. Pitches. Overhand curveball outside. Ball one. One ball, no strikes. The outfield is set to the left. There's a wide open hole in right center field. Thane takes a stretch. He delivers it. And there's a fly ball that's drifting toward left center field. Rickard is under it. The left fielder. And he takes it to retire the side. No runs, one hit, no errors, one left. At the end of four and a half innings of play, the score is nothing, nothing. Believe me, shaving's really something when you prepare your whiskers with Gillette shaving cream and ease them off with a Gillette blue blade and your Gillette razor. Gillette shaving creams, both lather and brushless, remove moisture-resisting oil from your beard almost instantly. Every bristle gets soaked through and through, pronto. That makes shaving a cinch. Now, listen to this. Both Gillette brushless and Gillette lather contain K34. This amazing facial antiseptic destroys 85% to 99% of all dangerous bacteria on and beneath outer layers of the skin. So shaving the modern all Gillette way makes your face surgically clean. Yes, as clean as the scientifically scrubbed hands of a surgeon. Men, for utmost shaving luxury, plus the cleanest face you've ever had, 
Use Gillette shaving cream. Lather or brushless, a quarter. Only Gillette shaving creams contain K-34. And now for the next four and a half innings of the play-by-play description of the opener of this 1948 World Series. While the umpires confer with Bob Feller, the pitcher, and shortstop manager Lou Boudreau over something, it is a great pleasure again to present my all-star game colleague, Mel Allen. Thank you very much, Jim. Hello once again, everybody. Whatever the discussion was at the mound with Boudreau Feller, plate umpire George Barr, and first base umpire Bill Summers, it's all over. Perhaps something concerning the uh, style delivery that Bobby Feller is employing. That's just a guess from this point high above the playing field. At any rate, we're all set to go now in the last half of the fifth inning of the scoreless ball game. And leading off, leading off for the Boston Braves in the last half of the fifth inning is Marv Rickett, left-hand hitter who flied to center in the second inning. There's a boy who never realized he'd be playing in a World Series this year. Because of Jeff Heath's injury, Rickett was recalled by the Braves and given special permission. Bob Feller throws outside the fastball, and the count is one ball, no strikes on Marv Rickett. Batted over 300 with Milwaukee in the American Association, went home. Billy Southworth sent out a hurried call to come on. Finished up the season with us. Then he got special permission from baseball commissioner Chandler and with the consent of the Cleveland Indians to participate in the World Series. There's a pitch that's cut on and fouled back to the screen. Strike one. Count is even up at one and one. Marbrick at the batter with Bill Salkeld on deck and Mike McCormick to follow. No score. Last half of the fifth inning. First game for the 1948 World Series. A game that has been primarily a pitcher's deal thus far. A game that has not been productive of too many fireworks, too many exciting plays, but they'll come. Kind of a ball game that suddenly will explode and the crowd will roar. Bobby Fowler into the lineup, delivers. Marv Rickard swings and lines one pass first out of the right field for a base hit. Dudney goes over, fields the ball, whips his throw into second, and Rickard is on with a base hit to right field. A single. The first hit off Bob Feller. And just as we said, the crowd was waiting for something, then it happened. So Rickard lined one to the right of Eddie Robinson in between first and second to right field. And the young man who had no idea at all of playing in this World Series gets his team's first hit in the World Series. And that brings to the plate Bill Salkel, the left-hand hitting catcher for the Boston Braves. Batting at 244. Struck out in the second inning. Bobby Feller blows in his pitching hand. No score in the ball game. That's the Braves' first hit, so you can relax now if you have any attention about a possible no-hitter. Here's your pitch. It's the butt out in front of the plate. Egan up for the ball. Quits it to Robinson for the out. Going down the second is Rickard. It's the sacrifice as Bill Salkel bunts to the right of the plate down the first baseline. Egan pounced on the ball, whipped his throw to first in time to retire. Salkel, who is credited with the sacrifice. Rickard moves to second, puts him in scoring position, and brings to the plate Mike McCormick. Mike popped out to Lou Budrow in the third inning. A 299 hitter on the season, a right-hand batter. He saw a World Series service with the Cincinnati Reds back around 1939 and 40. So the World Series has no unusual tension for him. Outfield plays him a step toward left. Infield shaded around toward third. Rickard with a short lead off second. Here's the pitch. Swung on. It's a high fly ball out into short center. Gordon goes out on the grass. Doby comes in. Joe calls for it. Makes the catch. Right in behind him were Doby and Walt Judney. Holding second base is Rickett. Mike McCormick pops to Joe Gordon in short center. 
And now coming to bat is Eddie Stanky. Eddie bats him right-handed. Popped out to third baseman Kenny Kelpner's first time up. He was certainly a spark plug in the 1947 World Series when he was playing second base for the Brooklyn Dodgers against the New York Yankees. And was a spark plug for the Braves the early part of the year until he broke his ankle. Right-hand batter swings and sends a little dribbler back to the mound taken by Feller on two hops. He whips his throw over to Robinson in time for the out. That's all for the Braves' threat in the last half of the fifth inning. Stanky grounding out the pitcher to the first baseman. Feller to Robinson. No runs for the Boston Braves. They got one hit. Their first hit off, Feller. A ringing liner to right field by Marv Rickard. No errors for the Cleveland Indians. And one man left on for Boston. And thus the score at the end of five innings of play. Nothing and nothing. With your totals, the visiting Cleveland Indians, no runs, three hits, no errors. The host Boston Braves, no runs, one hit, one error. And so we're ready now to move into the top half of the sixth inning. And the Cleveland Indians will come up with Larry Doby, Lou Budrow, and then Joe Gordon. Johnny Sane from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Folks down there are mighty proud of him as our baseball fans everywhere because he's a great pitcher. Pine Bluff, Arkansas also is the home of Don Hudson, who made his mark in the football world. Johnny Sane all set to work. Larry Doby stepping in the hitting position. A scoreless ball game, and the thousands who have come to Braves Field today to watch this first game of the World Series are sitting back, somewhat relaxed, not too much. They know something's going to happen pretty soon. It's got to, and they're just waiting for it. The right-hander, Johnny Singh, into the windup. In comes the pitch for the left-handed hitting Doby, who takes the curve inside for ball one. Doby flying to center and grounded to short in his first two times at bat. Bill McKechnie coaching at third base, walking up and down. Singh working rapidly, delivers. An overhand fastball had swung on a broken bat, dingle out over second, and Doc almost got it, but couldn't quite do it. The ball goes into center, and it's in there for a base hit up for the ball. Is Mike McCormick. He whips his throw back into second, and Doby is on with a broken bat single to center. Baseball players don't care whether they break their bats or not if they get their base hits. The Doby gets the single to center for the fourth Cleveland hit of the ball game, and that brings to the plate the manager, Lou Budrow, who flied to left and struck out. There goes Doby. The hit and run is on. The ground ball hit to Stanky's up with it over to first base to Torgerson in time for the out on Budrow. No chance for the double play as Lou put on the hit and run. And Doby was off and winging on the pitch. Budrow trying to hit behind the runner into right field. Was unable to get it into the gap between first and second. Hit it to Eddie Stanky, whose only play was the first base. So there's one away. Doby's on second in scoring position, and the batter is Joe Gordon. Joe's had one for two. Single last time up. A right-hand batter takes strike call over the inside corner. He didn't like the decision. Steps out of the batter's box and remonstrates briefly with plain umpire George Barr. Gordon looked at the third strike in the second inning. Single to left in the fourth and stole a base. Top of the sixth inning, no score. Larry Doby on second. Takes a big lead. Sane takes the stretch. Checks his runner. Here's the pitch. It's a curve that's high for the ball. Johnny Sane has a peculiar motion. He takes that stretch and sort of whirls around back towards second. That forced Larry Doby, who had a wide lead, to go back to the bag. And then Sane comes back around and into the plate with it. Keeps the runner from taking too wide a lead. There's an attempt to pick off a throw down a second. Back in there safely is Doby with a headlong slide. The count is one ball, one strike. Eddie Stanky took the throw from Johnny Sane, returns the ball to Big John. Joe Gordon, the batter. One away, Doby again takes his lead. Stretched by Sane to look back. Here's the pitch. Joe Gordon swings and fouls it back onto the screen. 
And the count now is one ball, two strikes on the flash. The outfield for Gordon, way around toward left. They play him as a full hitter. Infield shaded around toward third. Bob Elliott is deep at third, close to the line. Al Dark deep on the edge of the outfield grass. Over toward the third base hole slightly. Eddie Stanky about three strikes to the right of second base as we look out onto the field. Earl Torgerson laying about 15 feet off the first baseline in the halfway. Johnny Singh looks in to get his sign. Then he decides to step off the rubber. Goes to the draws and back for a moment. Comes back upon the hill. Toes the slab. Joe Gordon, slightly open stance. Waits the pitch to count one ball, two strikes. Here it is. Gordon swings and lets a fly ball out in the left center field. Converging over there are Rickard and Mike McCormick. Rickard Dunner makes the catch. Doby, halfway toward third, scoots back to second. They're two down. And the batter now is Kenny Keltner. Joe Gordon is retired by Johnny Sane on the fly ball to left center, which Marv Rickard took easily. And now Keltner steps up. A 298 hitter during the season, almost a 300 batter. Keltner single to left in the second inning for the first hit of the World Series. Struck out in the fourth. Always a dangerous man in that clutch. Johnny Singh with a stretch, throws. Keltner swings and fouls it back onto the screen behind the plate for a strike. Indians have Larry Doby on second base in scoring position. It's a scoreless ball game, top half of the sixth inning. Keltner, who's a six-foot, 180-pounder, hails from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He put the big blast on the Boston Red Sox in the playoff game at Fenway Park the other day when he hit a homer, following singles by Boudreau and Gordon. That was the big blow that touched off the Indians' pennant celebration a couple of hours later. Now the pitch. Keltner swings and lines one out to left center field. There's Rickard racing over under it and grabs it for the out. That was a tremendous liner to deep left center. Marv Rickard was laying back deep. Raced to his left and grabbed the ball about ten feet from the scoreboard. No runs for Cleveland. One hit. No errors for Boston, and one left on for the Indians. No score at the end of five and a half innings of play. The score, Cleveland nothing, Braves nothing. Ask Joe DiMaggio of the New York Yankees, and he'll tell you his Gillette Super Speed Razor is the most convenient shaving instrument he's ever used. Am I right, Joe? Yes, Mel. But I'd add that it's also the easiest shaving razor I know about. Well, coming from a tough, whiskered guy like you, Joe, that's a real phrase. Give us more. Well, that about tells the story. The razor gives me swell shaves without fuss or bother. I've recommended it to plenty of fellows, and any number of them have thanked me for fitting them next to it. Fans, take Joe DiMaggio's advice, will you? Get a Gillette Super Speed Razor, the only razor that combines instant blade changing with supreme shaving comfort and double-edged economy. With a 10-blade Gillette dispenser, it's a regular $1.50 value for only a dollar. Coming into the last half of the sixth inning. Scoreless ball game. And it's going to be Johnny Sane leading off of the Braves. That's a right-handed Bobby Feller, who has limited the Braves to one hit over the first five innings. All set to work. Sane fouled out to first baseman Eddie Robinson in the third inning. Swings pretty good for a pitcher. Bob Feller throws. Sane swings and hits one on the ground out to short. Scooped up by Lou Bedro. There's his throw over to Robinson in time. And there's one away for the Boston Braves in the last half of the sixth inning. Sane going after that first pitch, grounding out. Budro to Robinson. On a little low liner, two hops to Budro. We go to the top of the order now to pick up Tommy Holmes. Tommy fly to center and bounced out to Feller in the fourth inning, 0 for 2. And incidentally, of the 18 putouts for the Braves, 10 have been fly balls and pop-ups. 
Tommy Holmes, a left-hand hitter. Bobby Feller rocks in the box. Round comes the right arm to pitch. Fastball outside. Ball one. Tommy is a Brooklyn boy. Used to be the property of the New York Yankees, who sold him to the Boston Braves. And become quite a star. Bobby Feller throws. The left-hand batter takes fastball low. Ball two. Two balls, no strikes. Although Tommy is a left-hand hitter, they don't play him to pull too much. As a matter of fact, they shade him somewhat toward left. He hits that ball where it's pitched. Slices a lot. Kenny Keltner laying in close at third. In the event of an attempted bunt, Lou Budrow, who plays the shallowest shortstop of anyone we've ever seen anywhere, over near the bag at second. Here's your pitch. Outside. Ball three. Three balls, no strikes. Incidentally, the official scorers for the World Series... There are three of them. Ed Burns of the Chicago Tribune, who is national president of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Bert Whitman of the Boston Herald, representing uh, the Boston contingent. And Ed McCauley of the Cleveland News, representing that end of the picture. Feller throws a pitch in there for a call strike. Green on the count now on Tommy. One down. Last half of the sixth inning, a scoreless ball game. And as anticipated, as expected, and almost, you might say, as advertised. It's been a pitcher's duel between Johnny Sane and Bobby Feller, two great right-handers. Rapid Robert into the windup, fires away, his pitch swung on and fouled back to the screen. Ball rolls up the screen, almost into the press box. So you have full count now on Tommy, three and two. Feller goes to that Rosenbach, gives it a bit of a touch, stands with his back to the plate, looks around the outfield. Lou Budrow walks around out at short. Lou hollers something to his pitcher. Kenny Kelton over there, third kicks the dirt. Joe Gordon swings his arms around up over his head. He's laying about two strides off to the right at second base. Bobby fell into the lineup for the playoff pitch. Here it is. Tommy Holmes swings and fouls it off back of third out of play. Going for it was Dale Mitchell, but he couldn't get anywhere near it. The left field foul line umpire, Joe Paparella, the American League, goes over to retrieve the ball. Billy Southworth coaching at third. Brave skipper walking up and down, wearing the number 30 in the back of his uniform. Hollers words of encouragement up to Tommy Holmes. Johnny Cooney coaching at first base. Bob Feller blows in his pitching hand. That's a pitching characteristic of his. Jimmy Hegan gives him the sign. Three balls, two strikes, one out. Last half, sixth inning, no score. Bob's into the windup. Round comes the right arm. Here's the payoff pitch. Holmes swings and sends a long fly ball to left field. Dale Mitchell backs up, whirls around, gets under the ball, makes the catch, and they're two away. Mitchell played that one beautifully. He got a look at the ball, went back, whirled around with his back to the ball, Raced toward the wall about 10 feet and then turned around and was set to make the catch. So with two down, up to the plate steps Alvin Dark. Dark grounded out through the first baseman in the first inning, Eddie Robinson. Was tossed out by Joe Gordon in the fourth inning on a hard smash. Alvin, a right-hand batter, wide open stance. Bob Feller throws, Dark swings and lifts a fly ball out into left center field. Here's Larry Doby digging in. He's under it, waiting now, and he makes the catch for the out. And thus, the Boston Braves go out in order in the last half of the sixth inning. No runs, no hits, no Indian errors. Nobody left on for Boston. And the score at the end of six innings, Cleveland nothing, Boston nothing. With your six-inning totals, Cleveland no runs, four hits, no errors. Boston, no runs, one hit, one error. Before we go to the top of the seventh inning, friends, we pause ten seconds for station identification. 
Your dial is set at 710, the spot for sports all year round. Your World Series station, WOR, in New York. This is Mel Allen speaking to you once again from Braves Field in Boston. The first game of the 1948 World Series. Jimmy Britt and I have been having a wonderful time describing this scoreless pitcher's duel with Johnny Sane and Bobby Feller baffling the hitters. Feller having given up one hit, Sane four. And this broadcast going around the United States is also going around the world through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service to Uncle Sam's troops abroad. Wally Judnick up for the Cleveland Indians. Swings and fouls the first pitch off to the right of the plate. Strike one as we go to the top of the seventh inning. Judnick left-hand batter. Line to right field in the second inning and fly to right field in the fourth. Right-hander Johnny Sane all set. Fires away. The pitch is swung on. There's a good fly ball hit out in the right field. Tommy Holmes is getting under deep. Makes the catch about 10 feet from the bullpen barrier and about 20 feet off the right field line. Judnick seems to have the range, but unable to get the distance. That's the third time that he's gone out to right field. Lined out and has skied out twice. And now we have Eddie Robinson stepping in. Grounded out to Earl Torgerson in the second inning and flied to right in the fifth. A scoreless ball game. Robinson steps in. The outfield toward right. Bob Elliott laying about ten feet off the third baseline and quarter of the way back toward the outfield grass. Johnny Singh delivers. Robinson swings and hits a high pop-up foul back of first. Torgerson going for it, can't get it. The ball is out of play going into the stands in behind the Cleveland dugout, which is located behind first base. The home team, the Boston Braves dugout, of course, located between home plate and third base. Singh checks with Salkel, gets his sign. He's into the windup. Brown comes with the right arm to pitch. Fastball swung on, hit high into the air, out into short right field. Tommy Holmes comes in under the ball, taps his glove three times, makes the catch. And they're two down for the Cleveland Indians in the top of the seventh. I don't know how long this can go on, but as long as it goes on, we'll be here. The wind is blowing in, incidentally, from the outfield toward home plate. I think that Jim Britt may bear me out in this. That's a characteristic of Braves Field, Charles River, that blows by out there. The wind's always blowing in. Now, here's Jimmy Hegan, right-hand batter. Johnny Sane ready. Comes in with a fastball that swung on, lined out into short left center. Coming past to Mike McCormick, makes the catch. And that's all for the Indians. In the top of the seventh. No runs, no hits, no errors. Nobody left on, and all the Braves fans are up and yelling in the last half of the seventh inning. The score, Cleveland nothing, Boston nothing. Joe DiMaggio of the New York Yankees said a mouthful last inning when he told you that the modern Gillette Super Speed Razor is the easiest shaving and most convenient razor he knows about. Men, with this improved razor, you change blades instantly. Enjoy superlative shaves and have the added advantage of double-edge economy. Twist, the razor opens for the blade. Zip, it's loaded. Twist again, and you're all set. There's nothing to take apart or put together, nothing to jam or clog, and what's more, you don't have to be a locksmith to make it work. Cleaning is a cinch, too. Just loosen the razor slightly, rinse, and shake. Now, you get the razor, plus a 10-blade Gillette dispenser, a regular $1.50 value, for only a dollar. Buy one and see what modern shaving comfort and convenience are like. Last half of the seventh inning. Scoreless ball game. 
the thousands out here today, predominantly Boston partisans, standing up last half of the seventh inning for that seventh inning stretch. And now we're ready to go in the last half of the seventh inning with Earl Torgan leading off for Boston to be followed by Bob Elliott and then Mar Bricker. It's a scoreless game. Bob Feller on the hill, realizing one of his lifetime ambitions, that is to have the opportunity to pitch in a World Series game, is into the windup. Here's the pitch to the left-hand batter. He tries a button, misses. Strike one. Earl Torgerson, who's a pretty fast man, tried to bump that ball down the third baseline and beat it out, but he never got close to it. As a matter of fact, he just threw his bat at the ball, hoping to push it down the line. It was unsuccessful in the attempt. They realized that Bobby's a pretty rough customer to handle, the way he's hopping off those curves and getting his fastball working today. They're trying to bunt to get on. Now the pitch is swung on. A good shot rammed. A great back here. Stopped by Robinson. A throw to Feller. And a put down at first base on a tremendous play. Hustle on the part of Bob 
in order to get the batter at first base. Elliott was out by a step. Another fine fielding play. The reverse of the previous one, which was Robinson to Feller. This was Feller to Robinson. There's no doubt that what uh, a runner like Torgerson or Alvin Dark would have beaten that out for a base hit, which is to take nothing away from the hard-hitting Bob Elliott. Now Marv Rickard, the left-hand hitter, is up there. Bobby Feller throws a pitch over the outside corner for a call strike. Rickard flying to center in the second inning, and then on the fifth inning, singled sharply to right field for the first and, so far, only hit off Bob Feller. A scoreless ball game. There have been but five hits in the game. The Indians have four. The Braves one. Feller leans forward, looking in, getting that sign. He's ready. Into the windup round comes the arm. Here's the pitch. Rickard takes outside. And the count is even up at one and one. One ball, one strike. Billy Southworth coaching back to third. Slaps his hands together. Come on, Marv. Rickard's wearing number four. That was the number that Jeff Heath uh, wore before he hurt his ankle. He broke it. And eliminated himself from participation in what would have been his first World Series. Now the pitch is on its way to Rickard. He swings and lifts a high fly ball down the left field line. Lou Bundrow goes out. Calls for it. Mitchell in behind him. Lou makes the catch. And that's all for the Boston Braves in the last half of the seventh. Bundrow went way out on the grass and left field toward the line to make the catch. No runs. No hits. No errors. Nobody left on. And at the end of seven complete innings, ladies and gentlemen, it's a scoreless ball game. totals. Cleveland, no runs, four hits, no errors. The Boston Braves, no runs, one hit, one error. The ball game started at one o'clock, and according to the spectacular and gigantic scoreboard they have out here at Braves Field, one of the finest we've ever seen anywhere in any ballpark, it is now 2.20. That's Eastern time, of course, which means that these two teams have played seven innings in the very fast time of an hour and 20 minutes. So we're ready to move now into the top half of the eighth inning. And we're getting into the stage of the ball game now where tension rides high on every pitch. One run will loom tremendously large. And it's a nice round of applause that greets the appearance of Bobby Feller as he walks up to the plate to lead off for the Cleveland Indians in the top of the eighth inning. Bobby gets a base hit now and then, but he's not known too much for his hitting prowess. He struck out and sacrificed in his two previous appearances. Johnny Sane throws. Feller attempts a bunt and misses. Strike one. He'll be at the top of the order. Dale Mitchell. Coming up next, and then Larry Doby. The outfield step toward left for Bob. Bob Elliott laying in close to third. Johnny Sane fires away. And it's inside for a ball. Fastball. Count is even up at one and one. This has been the kind of game, except for the one fielding play in the last inning, has not allowed for too much excitement. Now the pitch. Swung on and missed by Bobby. Curveball had him rippling. One and two the count. That noise that you hear in the background is the diesel engine. Johnny Sane throws. Bob Feller swings and he misses. Strike three. The strikeout for Johnny Sane. Strikeout. He's chalked up since the fourth inning and his fourth of the ball game. Uh, his fifth of the ball game as we recheck. 
And now coming to bat is Dale Mitchell, who had a very successful year. American League pitchers found him a very rough man to get out. Left-hand batter, Johnny Sane throws, curveball inside. Mitchell fly to center, fouled out to third, and fly to left in his uh, three previous appearances. He's a six-foot-one, 195-pounder from normal Oklahoma. Sane throws, Mitchell swings and lifts a fly ball out into deep center. Mike McCormick races back, gets under the ball, waits, makes the catch. So there are two down for the Cleveland Indians in the top half of the eighth inning. And now we have Larry Doby, who flied to center, grounded to short, and single to center in that order. Stepping to the plate, another left-hand batter. And just how long this sort of thing can go on, we don't know. It's uh, delightful to the baseball connoisseur who loves baseball that's played close to the vest and tight like this. Johnny Sane delivers to Larry Doby, who swings and lifts a high fly ball down the left field line. There's Rickard racing over into foul territory now. He makes the catch. And so the Cleveland Indians fail to score on the top of the eighth inning. No runs, no hits, no errors. Nobody left on. They're out in order. And at the end of seven and a half innings of play, the score, Cleveland nothing, Boston nothing. Say, mister... You'll never know how quick and easy blade changing can be until you get acquainted with a remarkable Gillette dispenser. This handy device puts 20 Gillette blue blades, 40 of the sharpest shaving edges ever honed, right at your fingertips. Push with your thumb and zip. There's an unwrapped blade ready for use with any Gillette razor. Convenient? Hmm, you said it. The Gillette dispenser is the newest thing in shaving aids. The latest word in shaving convenience. Another thing. It protects the shaving edges at all times. They don't even touch the dispenser when blades are being ejected. Enjoy extra shaving ease and convenience. Get a Gillette dispenser. You pay only 98 cents. The regular price of 20 blades. Look sharp. Feel sharp. Be sharp. Use Gillette Blue Blades with the sharpest edges ever honed. Ball game, first game of the 1948 World Series. For you late tuners in, the Braves have gotten one hit, the Indians have gotten four. No score. And as we come to the last half of the eighth with Bob Feller pitching for Cleveland and Johnny Sane doing the pitching for Boston, as we come to the last half of the eighth inning, Bill Solkel, the Braves' left-hand hitting catcher, steps to the plate. He struck out and sacrificed in his two previous appearances. Bobby Feller starts his wind-up. Around comes the line arm to pitch. Solkel takes strike call over the outside corner. It was a fastball. Rapid Robert, and he's rapid today. Taking plenty of time. Hides that ball behind his back. He looks in to get the sign from Hegan. Now he's ready. Into the wind up. Here's the pitch. Solkel moves away from a curve inside. Ball one. One and one the count. and several of the Indians come to the front of the dugout and holler up at George Barr about uh, the position assumed by Bill Solcal in the batter's box. They claim that his back foot is outside the restraining line, which, to uh, put it uh, simply, is against the law. But it's all straightened out. Fellow ready to work again. Here's the 1-1 pitch. 
And to Hook, that's low inside for ball two. That head saw Cal Wiggling. When Feller's curveball is working, he'll have anybody wiggling up there. You know what that ball is going to do. Two balls, one strike to count. Bill saw Cal the batter last half the eighth inning, no score. They don't play Saul Cal to pull too much. Keller leans forward, gets his sign. Keller laying in close to third, about 10 feet off the line. Now the pitch, Saul Cal takes inside again. Ball three, three one. Brave fans start that rhythmic applause now, calling for a rally. And of course, when the Braves move to Cleveland, the Braves will hear some of that same sort of Cleveland Cleveland fans start that rhythmic applause. Because that huge municipal stadium on the shore front of Lake Erie can be thousands of them rooting for their hometown team when the series scene shifts to Cleveland day after tomorrow. Bobby Feller, 3-1 pitch on its way, and it's inside, ball four. And thus, Bobby Feller walks his second man. He had walked Earl Torgerson in the fourth inning. assuming that something should occur here for the Braves. And now here's Bill Macy coming out of the Braves dugout. He's going to run for Bill Saltel. As Billy Southworth in the last half of the eighth inning is a man who's got a runner on base. And there have been so few of them on base for the Braves today. One hit, a line single to right by Marv Rickard in the fifth inning. And a couple of bases on balls. One to Torgerson in the fourth, and now one to Saltel in the eighth. Macy running for him. Mike McCormick up. The Indians are looking for the bunt. Kelner in on the grass at third. Bud ready to cover second. Gordon first. Here's the pitch. It's funny down the first baseline beautifully. They're letting the ball roll. And it's picked up by Feller. Fair foul. He throws to first base. What did Bill Summers call it? He called it a fair ball. And out at first is Mike McCormick. tag him out. He tossed the ball over to Eddie Robinson. That moves Bill Macy, who went in the run for Saltel to second base and puts up at the plate a fellow by the name of Eddie Stanky, one of the greatest clutch players in the history of baseball. And they're going to put him on. They're going to walk him. They're not going to take a chance with him. Blue Bucko orders Eddie Stanky to be put on with first base open. Sippy Sisti is going to go in to run for Eddie Stanky. 
So you've got Macy on second and Sisney on first, two pinch runners. And Johnny Sane, a right-hand hitter up, who's a pretty good hitter for a pitcher. Hit in 14 straight games, for example, in 1947. One down, no score, the stretch by Feller. Here's the pitch, Sane swings and hits the drive to right field. Judnick is going to get under it and makes the catch and the runners hold their bases. Johnny Sane came close to driving one over the head of Warner Judnick as he really tagged one. Judnick had to hustle back and grab it, and the runners, who were all up and running, had to hustle back to their respective stations. So Johnny Sane is out. He came awfully close to wrapping up this ball game. So with two down, up steps Tommy Holmes, the leadoff man for the Boston Braves. Left-hand hitter who flies to center, bounced out the feller and flies to left. And now Bobby is faced with his biggest pass to the ball game. Macy leads off second. Sisky leads off first, two down, last the eighth inning, no score. The stretch by feller and time is called as Tommy Holmes steps out of the batter's box. And now Billy Southworth. Trots out of the third base coach's box. I thought he was going to the plate, but he didn't. He ran over to pick up a glove, lying about 10 feet off uh, towards the plate, away from the coach's box. He's back in the stretch by fella, checks his runners. That's the second pick off a throw down to Budrow. It almost had Macy.
call of 10 seconds for station identification. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. You're listening to another great sporting event brought to you over WOR, your World Series station in New York. Blue Buckle leads off for the Cleveland Indians. Top of the ninth inning. Sisty at second. Macy catching. Here's the pitch. And it's over the outside.
enabling the Indians to get Kalfner in scoring position. And Walter Chudnik is the batter. And now the game has come right down to the wire. Two down. Kalfner on second on an error. Chudnik the batter, the pitch. And it's over the outside corner for a called strike. Nelson Potter, a right-hander, and Clyde Chown, a left-hander, throwing the bullpen for the Braves. Again, Kelton on second base, one to nothing. Save for the Braves, ninth inning, two outs. Here's the pitch. Jutnik swings and misses, strikes two. As Johnny Sane broke off a wicked hook. The pitcher from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, is just breaking off curves now. And he's ready for the two-strike pitch. And Kelton leads off second. Here it is. Jutnik takes strike three. Second. In the fifth inning, Richard 
who was made eligible just for this series because of the injury to Jeff Heath, singled and was sacrificed to second. The Braves used two sacrifices in the game, but he was left. And then Teller got hot again. He retired three men in a row in the fifth, in the sixth, in the seventh. And incidentally, the great defensive play of the game was accomplished by Bobby himself teaming up with first baseman Eddie Robinson. That was when he was spiked slightly, but he gamely continued when the injury was found not to be serious. The break came in the eighth inning, and it was Feller's own wildness that set the stage for the Braves' victory in this first one. He lost control, walked Bill Salkiel, Billy Southworth, who was thinking every minute of every hour of every day, immediately sent the faster Bill Macy into run for Salkiel, and McCormick dropped the sacrifice bunt down the first baseline. Then Sankey was given an intentional pass, and immediately the fleeter, Sibby Sisti, was sent in to run for Sankey since he has not completely recovered from his fractured ankle. With runners on first and second, Sane threatened to win his own game by building a line drive that all but went over the head of right fielder Walt Judnick. Judnick ranged back perfectly to make a good play. But with Holmes at bat, Tommy banged a line drive just out of the reach of third baseman Ken Keltner. Bill Macy removed his cap and sprinted home, hatless. And then on the throw in, the runners moved up. When Dark went out, it remained only for Sane to get by those powerful Indians in the ninth inning. And get by them he did. Boudreau hit a sharp line drive to left center, which McCormick took. Gordon popped up a foul, and Dark, after a good sprint, took that. Then came the ground ball to Elliott, the subsequent two-base error, and Judnick went down swinging. Judnick took a call third strike, rather, and it was the sixth strikeout. So the Braves are the winners with one run. Four hits, no errors, four runners left. One run, two hits, two errors, and four runners left. Cleveland, no runs, four hits, no errors, and six runners left. The totals, Boston, one run, two hits, two errors. Cleveland, no runs, four hits, no errors. The winning pitcher, Johnny Sane. The losing pitcher, Bob Feller. Mel? Jim, I just want to come back in and uh, inject, inter- interject a thought here that I'm sure will lend a great deal of the World Series as it will uh, continue to be played. To draw a parallel to Waller Johnson, Bobby Feller is considered uh, by most baseball observers to be, shall we say, the modern Waller Johnson. Waller is a great pitcher and yet never got into a World Series until in the twilight of his career. And even then, it looked as if Lady Luck wouldn't smile upon him to give him a win. And it wasn't, of course, until the Pebble incident. You remember the ball that bounced through the head of Freddie Lindstrom when Waller went in as a relief pitcher that he gained that victory. And here today, Bobby Feller was great in defeat, as was Johnny Sane in victory. And now, will Bob Feller be able to uh, get a victory before this series? So I think that's something that everybody, fans everywhere, are going to really be looking forward to. Another parallel, of course, now is the fact that back in 1914, the Boston Braves, referred to by some as hitless wonders and a miracle team, didn't even figure, said the experts, to get the first three A's out so they themselves could come to bat. But they went on to defeat the A's in four straight, and they were the first team ever to win four successive victories. One of the one of the ironic incidents of the game is that the last two-hit game was thrown by Mort Cooper of the St. Louis Cardinals against the St. Louis Browns, and he also lost. So Bob Feller, I think, certainly rates a title, which he doesn't doesn't like, that of the hard luck pitcher of the starter. The Braves still have not lost a World Series game since 1900. And now, fans, make a date to be with us via radio tomorrow for the second game of the series, and we'll have fun. Tuning time will be 12.45 Eastern Standard Time. 
the same as today. So, until tomorrow, smooth sailing, smooth shaving, and good afternoon from your host, the Gillette Safety Razor Company, Mel Allen, and Jim Britt. Recorded highlights of today's World Series game will be presented with Stan Lomax over WOR at half past 11 tonight. Stay tuned for Queen for a Day, which follows next. And then, following Queen for a Day, you'll hear The Answer Man, Luncheon at Sardi's, and Tiny Ruffner, The Ladies' Man. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.